Welcome to the Talking Transformation podcast. I'm your podcast host, Peter Ahmad, recording from Cape Town, South Africa, since June 2019. The Talking Transformation podcast provides an open and accessible platform for built environment professionals and interest groups to share their reflections and aspirations relating to the transformation of places and spaces in South Africa. It's intended to be a celebration of the individuals and community groups who are supporting formal and informal processes that are addressing the challenges of South Africa's history and shaping the future of our neighbourhoods and cities. For more than half of my career, I've worked within the Metropolitan City Councils of Johannesburg and Cape Town, the two largest cities by population in the country. For most of the metros, as the centres of South Africa's economy and businesses, multi-billion rand operating and capital budgets drive the efforts for service delivery and community building. Public participation and local economic development processes are frequently directed through extensive campaigns and extended periods of engagement. Social media is playing an increasingly important role, both in the way citizens can engage and contribute to both service delivery and strategic issues. However, notwithstanding these efforts, there can often be a disconnect between the city hall and the communities who are dealing with the daily challenges and structural deficiencies of spatial and socioeconomic circumstances. In addition, many of our municipalities are struggling with issues of capacity, service delivery and financial solvency. It's increasingly obvious that the state simply does not have the resources to reach and deep dive into all communities and in some instances we're seeing an absolute absence of governance and meaningful engagement. Regular scandals and disruptions in the chambers of parliament also lead citizens to question the foundations of governance and consider alternatives to the modes of community and nation building. What are the options and the alternatives to encourage and stimulate community development and self-help? In today's episode, we look at one of the initiatives that has grown from humble beginnings to now engage with communities in over 20 towns across the country. The Ranyaka Community Transformation Non-Profit Organization has grown partnerships with communities in corporate South Africa to champion the cause and opportunities afforded to communities. These partnerships are complementing the efforts resources and planning of municipalities, and they suggest the model of intervention and collaboration that could prove invaluable for many more towns in the future. Having joined the Renyaka professional team in April, I had wanted to understand better the foundations of the non-profit organization, what differentiates it from other community partnerships, and how it aids or hinders the formal processes that municipalities are engaged with, and what the potential is for sustainable growth and replication across the country. The name Renyaka translates to pursue, and that seems an apt and worthy name for an initiative where everyone I've met so far has pursued their own remarkable transformation story, each worthy of an episode in its own right. Today's episode is much an opportunity for me to tune into the Genesis story, the aspirations and achievements of Renyaka, and the community it serves. To understand the Renyaka journey, I'm joined by board chairperson William Biller and executive chief officer Johan Ulf here. I worked with both Johan and William in 2003 when I was still cutting my teeth within the city of Johannesburg. They both taught me so much back then about the needs and demands of planning and community engagement. It'll be an absolutely fascinating conversation to understand their own personal journeys over the last two decades and how they've adapted their engagement and planning skills to the new demands. As always, we hope you enjoy the episode and I'm grateful and indebted to both Johan, William and the Renyaka team following me to engage with them and understand their journey so far. Enjoy the episode. So just gone five o'clock on the 9th of June, Thursday afternoon here in KwaZulu-Natal, beautiful coastline, 
joined by my colleagues Johan Ulefier and William Biller. It's a conversation I've been wanting to have for many, many years, forget about months, uh, and it's a delight to be with you this afternoon. William, welcome. How are you keeping? What's news and what are we doing here? Uh, thanks, Pete and Johan. It's nice to meet you uh, again after so many years. I'm very excited to go through this podcast and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Johan, what brings us to KZN? Yeah, yes, Pete, I would like to say friendship. I've got a team here. We're busy with some planning. We're resting a little bit. We're reflecting a bit on what we do. Um, but at the end is face-to-face discussion and conversation around what we think we can add uh, value in terms of what we do. And it's a beautiful coastline. It is. It really is beautiful, that backdrop. The, the two of you have been working at this since 1996, I think. Mm-hmm. 1996, yes. in various guises, Johannesburg, back in the Midrand days. I think that's where the two of you started working. And then pulling together in the private sector in those early 2000s, maybe 2004, the Akanya story, which then is, is developed into the Ranyaka story. And I'm absolutely fascinated to hear how that story developed, how your friendship developed and how we find ourselves here. So tell us a bit about the, those formative years, the Joburg, the Midrand, and then into the, the private sector. Quite a story. Yeah, it, it has been a, quite a story, a very long, sometimes frustrating and sometimes very exciting story. But all in all, I think no regrets. I've met uh, Johan in 1996 in mm-hmm. uh, Midrand, young planners at that time, uh, very energetic and everything. I think the, the one thing that actually brought us closer together is the, the understanding as to what we need to actually do for the country. And we've done a lot of, a lot of work. At that time, we didn't even see that what uh, exactly impact that is actually going on there. But we actually moved from Midrand to the city of Johannesburg. I think it was in 1999. Yeah, just... Um, just, be, just before the whole mega city 2000, yeah. big change, yeah. metropolitan governance, right? Exactly, yes. And with Herman Pinar, who was our mentor and our boss at that time, very challenging times when we basically moved to the city of Johannesburg. We had to actually start the whole department, basically, from scratch, with no equipment, no computers, no offices. They, I still remember some of the, the passages were very nice and dark. So, but um, at some stage I want, just wanted to quit. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I think having Johan around, uh, I think gave me some strength to then say, let's just uh, push on. And yeah, the department was established. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of work that needed to actually happen there. At that time we didn't even have money for uh, consultants and so on. So we had to actually do the actual work ourselves. T- yeah. t- tell us about, about those first few years then in, in the new Johannesburg, Johan. I mean, four, four different transitional local councils, the metro coming yeah. together. It was quite a thing, right? Yeah, I think I've started in Joburg. So my first sort of, as a young planner, was in Joburg learning about building plans and STPs. And there was a Mr. Carroll there with still some of the zoning on a, on a wooden map. So it was actually fascinating to start there. But getting to, to Midrand, as William say, there was, I think me and Herman was, was the first ones to enter the building. And there was one lady waiting for us in a fax machine. And, and that was it. I think the, the legislator thing made it quite difficult sometimes because even just finding a title deed, you had to go and look at which 
municipality was it now and which sort of transitional council and all that stuff. But it was exciting time, Pete. Um, um, the whole setting up of Joburg with its entities and its agencies. I mean, we did really some pioneering work without, as William said, understanding what it really was. We were young and sometimes probably naive also. Um, so it was difficult. A lot of planners left. That 94 period, I think we lost nearly 20 land use planners. And that was just not there anymore. But again, it was opportunity to learn quickly about township establishments and things that we thought we would take us five or six years before we get to that level. So very difficult, but very exciting. Um, yeah. Things like the, the spatial framework mm. for Johannesburg, then the, the regional interpretation mm. of that, the local plans, yeah. working with the Gauw train stations, mm. I think was a, all of these things would have been in that period that the, the two of you mm. were working together, right? Yes, definitely. And I think, I think that's the other thing that Johan just mentioned now about the legislation. At some stage, even the terminology that we were using, if you look at it now, uh, we started with the spatial development framework. And then the, we had what we called at that time the local IDPs, mm. LIDPs. LIDPs, yeah. And if you actually look at the legislation, even at that time, um, we were actually at the wrong, uh, we were mentioning these things wrongly. You couldn't actually have a, an IDP for the municipality and also a local IDP. So we had to basically, as young planners at that time, and say, but how do we then change this thing? And then the, the issue of the RSDF actually came up. And if you fast forward that now, in fact, that terminology is also very wrong. Because in terms of what uh, the Spatial Planning and Land Use Management Act is saying, the RSDF should actually be, and what we called it at that time, it means it, it, it was wrong. But it wasn't more about the terminology as such. It was more about the content of this thing and what it should actually do for the city, what we wanted to actually achieve in terms of, of developing those things, which was very, very exciting going forward. At which point did the two of you start thinking and talking about making a break? It's always a big thing mm. going from public sector into the private sector. And there's this continual churn. Mm but many people will have lived their life out in the, in the public mm -hmm. sector. So it must have been a big decision for the two of you to decide to, to go out on your own and look at starting something special that would become Akanya in its initial form. William, maybe just some thoughts about that period of transition and then Johan, how you would then dovetail into that. Mm. Yeah, but I think it, it happened when we realized, when we were still in Midrand, basically, the work that we were actually doing in the Midrand Council. Um, one would actually then just call it spatial planning because we were called town planners at that mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. But the work that we were doing was not necessarily just town planning. It was more than town planning. We were actually changing the spaces and, and having communities basically be part of this thing and, and changing their livelihoods. And, you know, you could actually see that um, happening. In Ivory Park, we've done a lot of work with the communities there and projects and, and, and we've made a lot of mistakes, I must also say, but if you look at the transformation of Ivory Park at that time, it didn't have any sewer, uh, water, uh, schools and, and clinics, it didn't have that. And, and the engagements with the community and basically building that, the, the collaboration that we actually had with the engineers in Midrand, social people and so on, and bringing those things in that space. It gave us a lot of uh, satisfaction to see people's lives basically change in front of our, our eyes. 
And when we went to Joburg, that's what we wanted, we always wanted to have. And, and unfortunately, I think the environment um, there, and it's not anybody's fault, it's how it is set up within government that you basically work in a particular silo and then you work on that. We had many, many discussions between me and Johan in the morning. We usually actually got there very early. Uh, one of the things is that we were running away from the traffic. Coming <laughs> yeah, what, what, what traffic? Oh, between <laughs> between Pretoria and Joburg. Yeah, yeah between Pretoria. Because we, we stayed in, 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 in Pretoria and then we had to actually work in Joburg. So the earlier you got to Joburg, yeah, the better. So we, we, we had our meetings there in the canteen. Yes, I remember, yeah. <laughs> we had our, a, a number of meetings there and we discussed these things. Um, to say, but what what exactly do we want to achieve? And and I must also say that I mean the the transition from public to private it wasn't driven by money, but it was driven by what we did in 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 Ivory Park, and the changes that we could actually bring. But in the city of Joburg, although we had that opportunity because I was responsible for the South, which basically the profile of that is almost the same as the one in in Ivory Park. But it was limiting because you are only within the boundaries of the city of Johannesburg. If you had something in the city of Tswane or Eguruleni or Western Cape, you couldn't actually do that. So we thought, just let's go out and do this properly. And yeah, in 2004, I, we then discussed and then said, uh, let me go out and set up this thing and then we'll then take it from there. Johan, pick up the story. Well, firstly, I, I really appreciate our time in Joburg. We, we yes. developed a lot of new things. For planners to manage the capital budget of the city, I mean, that was, that was really amazing, setting up the online platforms way before anything else. So even with that responsibility and basically handing out money and aligning it with the plan, I think we still missed the landing of that funding for the right things, really activating communities. It was giving money for the board councillors, so it's a very sound system and a process. And I think, as William have said, it was good work, we really enjoyed it, but it was time to, to see if we cannot go bigger and really get to the community level. I think we, we yearn, yearned for that sort of energy mm. <laughs> that we could see in Ivory Park, and we believe that energy is in a lot of other communities also. So from Akanya, and I think it was a journey over about six, six or more years, things start to get interesting, particularly when you land as a collective in Machalis, mm. in the, the sort of little dopi, the little mm. village of, of Machalis there in Machali city. And you, you and the team, the collective start to work with the community in a very engaged way. And I would almost say in a, in a game changing mm. fashion. Tell us a bit about that, Johan, and why that would ultimately lead to uh, a split. And I mean a split in, in relation to, to, to the two entities, with Winyaka on the one side and the Akanya. Mm. Tell us a bit about that mm. and about why Machalis was a defining point, not for, for the two of you, but within the way that you've taken that engagement methodology and tried to expand it. I think it was 2010 when we had a strat session with the Akanya team. And one of the, we still use the balanced scorecard methodology. <laughs> and one of the things that we put on there is that we want to start a, a social entity to sort of drive the passion that we had for the community energy. So that was where it was born. 
I think in 2012, we were then appointed to do the LSTF or the Local Spatial Framework for Mughalis. So right. that was also mm. quite a turning point for us. Mm. I grew up very close to Mughalis in Randfontein. So I visited with, on my bicycle, <laughs> I could ride, <laughs> ride on a weekend quickly to Mughalis. We had a lot of church camps there. So it was nearly a logical thing to do. The, the vision for social was already there, the establishing a non-profit company and the tender allowed us to do the proper planning. And then the next thing was, you know, from there, let's go and get the communities together. At first meetings, I still have the photos and everything. <laughs> so they still, we're still in Mughalis. They're still not 100% sorted out, but it's close to our hearts. And uh, yeah, it's really, really exciting. William, your recollection of that period? Yeah, it was a very exciting period for me. I think Johan mentioned the issue of the, the first meeting up because we had to actually do the, the spatial plan, you know, like based on the legislation and so on. But when we were there doing the plan, we realized just but this is a fatal ground for what we can actually then achieve. And that turning point was the first public meeting that we attended to present this thing. In, in South Africa, we had like, the white areas and the black areas. In that meeting, we called all of them, and they were in that meeting. At first, you could actually sense there was some kind of some friction that's there. But when the, when the issues came out, I think the, the groups, they, they realized that they have the same problems. They might be living in separate areas, but the same problems and the interventions that could actually be put in place that would actually help all of them. And the solutions didn't necessarily only lie with government, but lied with them. That for me was more of than saying just, you know, maybe we should actually push harder and harder on this thing. Because what Johan just mentioned in terms of our strategy map, part of that social part of it was ignited that night. And then everything, I think, uh, as they say, Mm. Um, some of, some the, of it, yeah, the rest is history. history. <laughs> it's not to say that even today that everything has been sorted out. It's a process. And we must actually be very grateful to that community because they were very patient also with us. A lot of other stakeholders came in. Some of them went out, but there was like this core team. And some of, some of them, they're still here mm. with us now. We're very grateful yeah. of that. Tell us a bit about Mahalis as a a place, Johan, mm. and what those challenges were that were mm. being faced by communities irrespective mm. of those racial divides, and what was the methodology that you mm. would put in place, the programs that would start to shape mm. what would become a, a, not a template, but an evolving uh, mm. process of engagement. Mm. Yeah, Pete, of course, we started on the sort of the spatial side, the land use and the activity that's there. The little town actually is small, but very fragmented. So it's still a, quite a big issue in terms of just land use and land use activity. I think the other thing that we quickly saw is that the planning frameworks is not going to help us with the change management. How do we sort of get communities just starting to understand there's another vision, we can work together into, okay, we're happy with that, what's next? And then it was about, well, let's talk about plan and what it will take. And then it was, we need certain commitments. And then is how do we mobilize? So it was a typical change management process that was based on very sound town planning principles and very good relationships, Pete. I mean, it, it, that is the secret of all these things. We had to quickly, as Mr. Bilas said, just say, look, thank you for inviting us. Um, let's work together. And the relationships, some people 
came and some people left again. But it was a very good exercise in terms of looking at the legislation and all the policy that's in place and the reality that's on the ground. And I think we've learned quite a number of lessons, planning-wise, but also the change management thing. How do you get people on board? How do you keep them on board? And of course, then the governance issues. We always thought if you've got a plan, people are committed, there should be a business forum, for example, the festival that we've established, the community development forum. So it all followed quite a, the, the way that we were taught and the way even what the IDPs are saying in terms of process. Good planning, evidence, get governance in place, keep people committed and mobilized. So we, we stick to what we were good at, but we learned a lot in terms of the realities of outside of just the planning frameworks that, that we were using. And as William says, some of those town members are very good friends still, and they really appreciate of us being still there. <laughs> yeah, so that was a big learning curve. Of course, a big engagement coming up there in a couple of months' time in August mm. with, through the, with the festival. Mm. That would be the first post-COVID mm. festival there in Mahali. So that's something certainly to look forward mm. to. Renyaka has established itself now in terms of its uh, office and base mm. in the Western Cape in Stellenbosch. Mm. One of its big success stories that is very visible and very tangible there is the Co-Create Hub, right on the backside of the uh, Akerstock Mall by the municipal car park. But that was also part of that, Michalis, I think this idea of a hub mm. as a central point and place within the, the community and to use that as a focal point mm. for community development, for, for capacity building and for a place of, of hope and so forth. That certainly seems to be the recipe. Is, is that a fair way of assessing what you try to instill in Machalis and how that's come into the space of, of Stellenbosch now, William? The Stellenbosch one is almost like the, the head office. That model, because it's working so well already in Stellenbosch, it is something that you could actually also duplicate somewhere else in, in other cities and so on. But the Machalis one, in terms of the idea, was the, the birth of these, these hubs. And the way in which they work, they start to facilitate a lot of that stuff that started in Mahalis back. They started to actually f facilitate those. Our hope is that it will actually be duplicated in other areas as well and be able to help local communities to prosper from that point. Tell us a bit about the Stellenbosch Hub, Johan, and why, why it's mm -hmm. such an important part of the, the Renyaka brand and method. Yeah, I'll be just quickly going back to Mahalis. Our first hub was in Mahalis. But we had the, <laughs> the courage to, at some stage, just say, look, close, because it's not working. And we had to change the model. So we are now in a church hall in Mahalis for that up. Um, but I think the, the Stellenbosch one, everything we do, as you've said, we want to showcase at a space. Um, and I think the difficult things to showcase is relationship and connection. So yes, the app is all about economics. And we helping, I think there's about 42 enterprises that's now benefiting from the hub and it's really a, a really cool space for Stellenbosch because it's the students, they're looking for cool spaces. But the thing that really excites me is, is the, the connections that's busy for me between different communities in Stellenbosch. It was an old clinic and we always talk about how the old clinic nurtured the sick and really make them healthy again. And, and that's what the hub is starting to do at the moment. It's nurturing a lot of relationships, people coming together, people saying they love just being accepted. Because Stellenbosch can be quite a harsh place. There's very beautiful shopping, coffee shops and all these things. Um, and some people are intimidated by all that. And the hub is a place where you can really just come and enjoy yourself, meet people. 
I think that's what we wanted to pursue. Not the economics. I mean, that's the part of the need and the thing must run and we need to pay, make sure it pay itself. But the relationships, I think from the very start, Mr. Bilal also say, and it's something that you cannot always plan for. You can create the environment. It's just fulfilling to see that part of the, and it's not necessarily in our planning documents <laughs> or in our planning policy, but it's all about planning. Because, I mean, that's been one of the big criticisms of local economic development in municipalities, across mm. provinces and within the country as a whole has been the sort of inability to, to scale up uh, this idea of effective local economic development that really does reach uh, the communities mm. and gives that opportunity. Do you think that the, that the, the co-create hub there in Stellenbosch is providing that? And again, just to get an idea of the artisans, the various traders who are operating in that space. It, it's quite overwhelming, in fact, for such a relatively small space. I think the secret for us, Pete, and this is the process thing, it's that there's continuity in the hand-holding. Of course, a lot of our LED things we tackle is like a project. So we sent in somebody to go and train a business three months, and then that person leaves, and, uh, and sometimes we don't even get to the financial side. <laughs> so I think what our program allows at the moment is really to meet somebody, see what their needs are, work on the needs with them, see how they grow. So it's a continuous being part of the process, and I think that's why the hub is also successful. Some of the people that's in the hub at the moment, we met in 2016 already. The hub only opened. <laughs> I think last year, July, and some of them actually helped us to fix up the app. So it was incredible to work with a contractor, a builder, a plumber without the app, and then inviting them to come. We want to build this thing. Can you come and join? So that story of I've been part of this thing is also something that we miss sometimes if we do this, I don't want to say cookie cutter type of centrums that we put into townships, for example, where there's not a real local connection. And I think that's what the hub, even if it's so small, I mean, it is not 350 square meters, but it's, oh, it's the heart in 350 square meters can be, can be quite big. <laughs> can be a powerful heart indeed. Yeah. How have you taken some of that thinking and how would you like to take that thinking, mm. Johan, into that township economy? Obviously, mm. Stellenbosch CBD is you know, mm. central business district. It's not Kayamandi, mm. which is mm. what two, not even five minutes drive away, very different circumstance. How is it you're working with that community, mm. for example, and trying to leverage the, the strengths? Mm. In a, a yeah, I think it's again sound planning to look at the region, where is the economy happening, and, and not get stuck in the specific space. The guys from Kayamandi quickly told us, look, they want to be in Stellenbosch because it's a new market, there's tourists, there's students, they don't have it in Kayamandi. So what is helping some of the production is still in Kayamandi, for example, the fashion studio is still there, so the ladies are still providing that service in Kayamandi. But she now has a, a shopping space, a new market in the middle of Stellenbosch at a very reasonable price. And I think that's the secret, that we need to understand as planners the region's economy and where do we move that specific activity. You don't need to have the cell space in the township, but the production space, yes. Mm. But see where's the money. If the money is not necessarily there for a specific type of a product, let's see if we can find another space. But I think other thing is also the value of these hubs. It's not a technical thing that's a template or a blueprint. The values are connection. Oh, you need to be agile. Uh, you need to make space for people. So we will develop other hubs. They might look different. But those values we will try to sort of install in all of the other spaces that we work. And they'll definitely look different than the Stellenbosch one. 
One of the things I think that happened even as recently as last week was find use that space as a place for people who might be struggling mm. in terms of uh, mental health issues. Mm. And please just give us a bit of a sense of that, because obviously that that's not just about you know, what baking goods mm. or mm. art is available. It, it's providing a service, mm. which sounds like it was much needed. Yeah, and I think the whole, again out of the planning theory around people-centered, and that's what we it has been designed like that. And the first step is, of course, they, the group that came to us with feeling they are accepted in that space. So they had the confidence to come up to us and say, look, there's a huge mental health problem, I think probably everywhere, specifically under the students. And again, they had the confidence to come and say, can we use your space? Um, because we can invite people into this space, it won't intimidate them. And again, it's about people. And Peter, it was really sad and fulfilling to see that the space can, can do that nurture people and the needs that they've got and that's what our town planning legislation is saying spirit is to develop our communities develop our people so yeah william johan just talked about agility i think that the way that the renyaka team got agile during the, this uh, recent kzn floods here in in and around the the province was a really good example but it wasn't the first I think during that COVID period, we'd seen a pivot in, in the way that Ranyaka had engaged in the community. Again, watching and observing from your Gauteng base, but obviously with your chairperson sat on, what was your, what was your sense of the way that Ranyaka was able to really go beyond a, a singular hub in a particular area and spread tentacles in a very, very interesting and adaptive way? Yeah, it's something that actually touched my heart. I've met with the team prior to that, and, and when they responded, like they did, with very limited resources and so on. But remember, they actually responded during the COVID-19, when we started in 2020. And the way they actually moved, it was, it was amazing. It actually brought tears into my eyes, the way they did. And then there was the issue in KZN of the looting, KZN and, and Gauteng, the looting and so on. And they responded again. For me, it was like this big, big punch. When I thought everything was amazing, then it was the floods just recently here in KZN. And they responded. And, and I think even when I spoke to the team, I, I, I actually said to them that it means that the framework of Ranyaka, everything that needs to be done in there, was so powerful that it could actually respond to anything. And that is what spatial planning, town planning should actually do. Mm. Um, we should be able to plan forward, but we should also be able to respond immediately on issues. Some of the people, they might even think that those are not necessarily spatial planning or planning issues, but they are. And, and the way the team actually responded, I, I had tears of joy in, in my eyes. I was so proud of the team. It is an emotional thing. And even when we've talked about some of these issues over the last 48 hours, mm -hmm. revisiting some of that, it's very clear that some of the, the trauma is still there, even within the team that responded. How, how did and what did the team do, Johan, particularly in response to these floods in recent weeks? I think the first thing that you do is fall back on your instincts of, we need a plan. And I'm, I'm talking about the physical map. <laughs> to see how the terrain is looking, where are these things happening. I think the second one is stakeholders, who's busy. So I think again, through all the years, we could fall back on this is what, what we do. Map the area, know the terrain, 
speak quickly to the stakeholders, make the connection. Town plan is, is actually supposed to be very good with making the connection because we work in different sectors. So it was actually falling back on that. I think the main resource is the teams, yes, we can. We're not just saying it and running into the thing. <laughs> we actually very responsibly look at how do we do this thing. And I think the big thing was the networks. We were in Mumlazi um, for a while already, so we had good networks. We had good networks with the Durban Chamber. So it's all those technical things that we could fall back on that makes life easier and it helps you not to panic. Because you know there are certain things that you need to put in place and get your evidence, speak to the right people, make the connection. But at the end, it's about the heart. I think the guys that were here, and Malusi and Andile, it's through the night. It is heart-drenching to see people lost their houses, children lost their parents, and to just keep going and get the food in and put up the tents and try to find the counsellors. And that drives you. The technical stuff is there to help, but I think it's that thing about we really want to be part of this thing and really help. That pulled us through. And we had to respond within days. It was, it was really quick. William, I'm, I'm coming back to you. And I'm, we, we talked earlier in the, in the conversation about transitions, transitions from geographic areas into government, into the, into the private sector. I'm interested to understand from you how you've worn this hat, the fiduciary responsibilities that come with being a chairperson of this organization. How is that different from being you know, the employee? And in this whole conversation around leadership, how important is that? in guiding and setting down the sort of the, the corporate framework within which Johan and the team can do their work? Yeah, it's, it, it wasn't easy. But remember, Pete, I think when I've mentioned earlier, the fact that me and Johan has been sitting on this thing for a very long time. So if you, if you know what the end goal is, it makes it much easier it doesn't necessarily mean that the, the route is easy, but uh, if you know what the end goal is, you, you are able to actually drive towards that goal. I must also say that I think Johan has worked very, very hard. If you look at the team that is here now, the understanding of what is happening here, he did that, or I would say single-handedly. He did that single-handedly. and. He's been driving it. Even this morning, I actually looked at the team, the way they interact with the issues and understanding what the vision is. They are in good hands. And, and for me, I think if this can actually be duplicated anywhere else, it's far much easier. For me, as a board chairperson, the team, in a way, I would say, Johan is a CEO, <laughs> but they make it far much easier for me. Because whenever I get the reports and so on, I look at the alignment of the original vision and I can see that they are driving towards that vision. In fact, it goes to a point where I think in terms of timing, they are get, getting there faster than I thought they would, which makes me very, very, very happy. But must also remember, I, I had my first business, I think I was 12 years old. Mm. So I've been the chairperson of basically of the companies or company that I'm working for. And the ability to look and see whether they were on route to achieving their objectives and so on, I can actually it's, I, I can see it from from a distance. So this team, actually led by Johan, I can see that it's getting there. And Johan, the flip side of the coin, how how important is it to have that leadership, uh, corporate uh, 
framework for you and the team to operate. How important is that as a compass, if you like? As a compass, it is crucial uh, because I think, and we don't see each other necessarily often. I think in terms of the legislation, we need to meet at least three times a year. But just as a compass, because you get so busy with the things and you get sometimes overwhelmed or stretched. So it's always um, very helpful and a lot of value if I can get the board put together and say, okay, this is where we are. Can you just guide? But it also protects us because sometimes we can overplay our hands and start to spend on things that, that's not necessary. Uh, and I must say, sometimes we play the, oh, sorry, we need to ask the board first. We play that sort of card when we may be in a difficult situation. So it's both on the compost and the protection, just making sure that we stay within the legislation. We don't overplay our hands and really protect the employees also that way so that the business can, can survive by doing the right things. So a crucial, crucial role that they, that they play. Renyaka has the benefit of a number of corporate sponsors and again I guess that's where that whole framework mm. and corporate responsibility kicks in and allows Renyaka to do its work. One of the big initiatives that has been I think big success in, in conjunction with Nedbank has been this Proud of My Towns mm. initiative. It's been one of the programs that you've run out. Perhaps just tell us a bit about the Proud of My Towns, how that has mm. come about in terms of a particular brand which seems to be doing really well. You're active in a, a number of uh, towns throughout the country. And what some of those other programs are? When we looked at this whole program, we, of course, you want to sort of identify your strategic partners because there's no way that you can do it on your own. We don't have the resources. And uh, if I can call my just general, the banks, they were quite a strategic partner, Pete, because they were, in terms of their foundations and the CSI and ESG and all the other, they were spending on the stuff that we wanted to go and make better. After government, they probably the biggest spenders in terms of education and health and, and all these things. So it was crucial for us to find the right partner. And, and we were quite blessed to, to start this whole journey with NetBank and to find somebody that was willing to pay for our time that we spent in communities. I mean, that's just incredible. So the whole relationship has grown really from a, yes, some funding is to the community thing to it's starting to be quite an integral part of the story of NetBank also in terms of how they connect with communities and the journey they want to walk with communities. It's not just a, a Mandela Day journey. It's a real, quite a deep relationship that they're building. And we need that type of corporate responsibility, accountability nearly, if we really want to drive the deep change that we need in the country. So that's just an amazing journey at the moment. And we are in, I think, about 21 communities at the moment in eight provinces. And with their help, we can really scale. Just some of the other programs that you've heard about today, William, when we've been talking that have made you particularly interested or, or worried if you're wearing that, <laughs> uh, let's say wearing that hat. Just some of your thoughts on what you've heard and, and some of the things that have really piqued your interest. Yeah, there was a young man here who actually uh, presented about the youth hubs. I was, I was, uh, yeah, that actually excited me a lot. <laughs> you, you know, for me, I think that that program, they started it outside Ranyaka. But if you look at what they are doing and how it aligns with what Ranyaga is actually doing, aligned to the vision and so on, it's an amazing thing. I think to, to some extent, it shows that the communities out there, a lot of communities out there, there's a lot of good that is out there. We just need to amplify that. Our country actually needs something like that. I'm very excited to see young men and women basically taking uh, this thing um, forward. 
because I, us and uh, me and Johan here, we are not <laughs> young anymore. It's very exciting. It means that it, it is something that resonates with the people on the ground, and it's something that can actually change the trajectory of this of this country for the better. It was interesting hearing the conversation this afternoon, Johan, about sort of the climate change agenda mm. and how that's become such an important part, not just of, I'm thinking from a government perspective, mm. it's in it's in every IDP now, it's in every uh, spatial framework as to how, what our responses mm. are. Your observations and thinking around how that has become an important part and again, rewind to where we were in mm. 2004 when you entered the private sector and from coming out of government, where we are now, I think, is quite fundamentally different about how we're thinking about these issues. Environment's always been there, but it seems to have changed quite yeah. drastically. Yeah, I think, again, just a bit falling, not falling back, but going back to our, the thing about resilient communities. I think that was our first priority, is to get the communities to the place where they can self-organize, they can see what resources they have, because the climate change is a big thing, but it's more one thing. Sure. We actually have a huge economic <laughs> challenge at the moment and I think our methodology of building resilience, getting communities to, to self-organize, understand what's the environment, that's going to help us to land this the climate change at the place where we believe it should land, it should be in communities. That's where we're really going to see the change. And there's a lot of policies, global policies, national policies, a lot of good documents, but communities need to take it on. And I believe we've got the right networks. The youth hubs, for example, it's a very good vehicle to start to talk about. But the thing that we need to make of this climate change thing, it's how does it matter for your everyday living? We need to get it to that level or else it will always be just a thing somewhere that we think it's important. So now we are very excited about it. We started to work on it quite a while back already. Yeah, and we will learn a lot, I think, together with the communities here. Yeah. What's left for you for the rest of the tw year 2022? Mm. What are some of the highlights that you're looking forward to in the, mm. in the next couple of months? Yeah, I think that's just the exciting and the scary part of, of June because you, you want to deliver what you said you'll deliver through the rest of the year, but you also want to shift gear a bit. So I think the first thing is deliver on, on what we need to deliver, and that's where the calendars and the things coming. But the second part is shifting gear for next year, and that's why the systems that we're busy planning, uh, management system, the mobile application that we want to roll out um, soon in the year, the youth apps, those are all future planning things. So there's always these three positions that we're in as, as town planners. I, I, we said always in Joburg, you also always need to look back. So there's things that we've done already that we need to maintain. There's relationships where we cannot just leave. We're now here in the present, so we need to do what we need to do now, but we always need to look forward. And I think that's where the mobile applications, the management system, and the stuff that we also need to finish this year. And that's sort of what the, I think it's exciting, uh, where we are at the moment. William, you've talked a lot about the passion and the interest in the youth hubs and the youth as a, as, as a participant within this. Any messages for any of our younger professionals or, or activists who are listening to this podcast? Any messages for them in terms of uh, thinking, lessons learned? What I've actually realized about the young planners, I think they, they sometimes rush their career development without actually putting their boots on the, on the ground and really understanding the issues on the ground as to what needs to happen and why they need to. Why are they in planning? Why are they there? And what are the things that need to do to be able to change the spaces, the people um, for the better? 
So for me, it's basically humbling themselves within the profession. The profession has so much to offer. Um, you need to slow down and look around and basically do the things correctly. As you grow within the profession itself, it will reward you. And I'm not talking about money here. There are certain things that you cannot explain the, the feeling that you actually have as a person when you see the people, if you see the spaces change because of your efforts, because of your hard work and everything. It's immeasurable. You cannot measure that. You cannot explain that to somebody. But it is, it's the internal feeling that you have. And the money will come if it has to come. It will come. I'm not saying that people should work for free. The passion, if you have the passion to do good within the communities, everything else falls in place. Johan, where can people find out more about the work that Ranyark is doing, about the uh, online presence that you might have, whether it's through the website, YouTube, etc.? Yeah, I think all of those channels we are using at the moment, Pete, so if you just Google Ranyarka, dot com you'll get the Ranyaka website the Facebook page the Twitter uh, there is also a YouTube channel so people can find us on the web and of course at our offices both in Stellenbosch and we've got an office in Hatfield here up in the north so we always welcome a coffee when somebody come and visit us and we are online but I think the face-to-face -face meeting somebody is still the preferable way um, yes Easier to do these days yeah. than maybe 18 <laughs> months ago, yes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. I'm just going to pull you up on one thing. I think it's ranyarka.co.za yeah. uh, yeah. as opposed to .com, but mm. that's, that's 100%. To both of you, uh, I can't thank you enough for the time that you've given us this evening. Thank you for your time and reflections. Loved going back to 96 mm. and the whole journey that the two of you have walked. It's a commendable journey the two of you have walked. And I'm really excited to see what the next 20 years brings in terms of the growth of what you've sown here. Good luck and thank you for your time this evening. No, thank you very much, Pete. And thank you, Pete. And thanks for this interview as well. It's my pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this content of the Talking Transformation podcast. Please feel free to give us feedback via our Twitter platform. That's at Talking Transfo and the number one. Or alternatively, via our email address, talkingtransformation101 at gmail.com. Thanks and recognition also to Tribal Need for allowing us to use their track, Flags, as our introductory and closeout music on this podcast.